So Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Well, our culture in America is built on the idea of winning. Uh, our culture is built on a free market, capitalistic society, which, is, uh, which means that there's kind of a war for people's resources. War for people's attention, war for people's money, war for people's resources. So you start a business, you say, let's say you start a restaurant. If that restaurant's going to be successful, you need people to come to that restaurant. And if people are coming to your restaurant, uh, you might make a good living and you kind of become a winner, so to speak. But if they're coming to your restaurant, it means that they're not going to another restaurant, they're not going to the grocery store as much. So in the process, others are losing. So we have this kind of system where there's kind of winners and losers, there's nothing inherently wrong with the system. The, the system in itself is, uh, the theory behind it is that if you work hard and are creative and innovative, you can make a good living. And if you don't, then, well, you don't. Of course, it doesn't always operate that way. Sometimes the rich take advantage of the poor. Sometimes people don't, aren't given a fair shot, etc. But there's nothing wrong with the system inherently. That if you work hard, then you'll achieve. But this mindset of winning and winning at all costs has kind of permeated our culture in many different ways. In the 1980s, there was a researcher who began asking elite, question, elite uh, athletes a question. And he repeated this question every year for about a decade, or every other year for about a decade. He asked them, would you take a drug that would guarantee that you would win a gold medal if it meant that you would die within five years from taking the drug. In every uh, result that he, every poll that he had, about 50% of the athletes said they would take that bargain, that they would take the pill, win the gold medal, even if it meant they died in five years. While the results of this study have been challenged in recent years, there's clearly this bias towards a win-at-all-cost mindset. We see this in the doping scandals with Barry Bonds to Lance Armstrong. We see this in professional football players who risk their lives every week to win, to achieve. We see it even in youth sports where it used to be that youth sports was kind of a recreation, kind of where kids could come together and have to, you know, learn teamwork and learn life skills. But now it's all about winning. The winning mindset can also affect our relationships. Sometimes in our relationships we might be in an argument with a spouse or with a friend. And maybe the issue isn't all that important, but we want to be right. We want to win. Sometimes we have this desire to compete with others in terms of resources. We want to have a nicer house or a nicer car or a nicer gadget. Sometimes it's with clothes. We have this desire to win and sometimes we have this desire to win at all costs. This winning mindset has influenced the church. We talk about the idea of winning souls to Christ. In the 1980s and 1990s, there was this big push to win the culture wars. 
If you pay close attention to politicians who are talking about any multitude of issues, you'll see this language of warfare, competition, conquest that's kind of permeated throughout their language. Executive coach and author Ray Williams sums it up pretty well when he says this, America is obsessed with winning at everything, often at any cost. It translates from the war rooms to the athletic fields to the top of the corporate ladder. Business language is infused with the vocabulary of the locker room and battlefield. They battle to win in a competitive market and dominate the opposition with an aggressive plan, sometimes, quote, destroying their opponents. So that's kind of the culture we live in. It's a competitive culture, sometimes a win-at-all-cost culture. And we look at the time of Jesus and we see that the, the culture is really not that different on this issue. In Jesus' day, Jewish rabbis would often debate about who would be the, per, the people who would sit closest to God in paradise. They would have this kind of social ordering when they would have meals where the person that was kind of closest to the table uh, would be the highest rank. In the synagogue, the people who were considered to be the holiest were the people who could come closest. In Luke eleven forty three, the Pharisee or Jesus says to the Pharisees that they liked the best seat in the synagogue. One Jewish community had a written rule for how processions should occur. They said first Levites would come, then Le- or first priests, then Levites, and in third place all the people shall enter the rule one after another in thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, so that all the children of Israel may know their standing in God's community and conform with the eternal plan. And no one shall move down from his rank nor move up from the place of his law. So that all Israel may know their standing in God's community. It's the same thing that we're dealing with in our culture, this competition, this idea of winning at all costs. So rank, competition, uh, winning were prominent themes in the time of Jesus, and these had effects on the disciples. And so on the way to Capernaum, Jesus' disciples are debating who is the greatest. It's an amazing thing that they're debating when Jesus is among them. And then Jesus asks them, so what were you guys discussing on the way here? Like, oh, nothing. Nothing at all. (laughs) Nothing you need to worry about. And Jesus knew exactly what they were talking about. So he calls them together and he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all. He says, if you want to be first, you need to go to the end of the line. He doesn't say you, don't, you shouldn't want to be first. But Jesus tells us that the way to get there, to get to be first, to get closest to God's heart, is completely different than what we might imagine. We might imagine that we kind of climb this ladder to get up to God. We might imagine that Jesus would take his disciples aside and said, Okay, I'm going to give you the inside scoop. Now, if you follow exactly what I'm saying, you can be first in my kingdom. If you memorize the Torah, if you follow me perfectly, you can be first. And we're going to have a little competition here. And whoever does the best job, he's going to be first in my kingdom. But he doesn't do that. He says, the first shall be last. In short, he's saying, if you're going to be first, you need to give up trying to climb that ladder. You need to give up trying to achieve being first. I really don't like fighting crowds. Uh, so when I go to a, um, a busy place like a Sabres game or Bills game or whatnot, 
Uh, oftentimes what I'll do is I'll leave a couple minutes early before the game is over to try to beat everybody out to the car and you know so there's no traffic and whatnot. So I've done that and that works out okay. Um, but there's another strategy. I don't like it quite as much, but it also works is if you just sit in your seat after the game is over and then just wait it out, wait for everybody else to leave. And then you can go out and there's no crowd. I think that's kind of what Jesus is calling his disciples to do, to wait to the end, so to speak, to choose intentionally to be last. In short, I think we could sum up this passage by saying that followers of Jesus win by becoming losers. Followers of Jesus win by becoming losers. It's very counterintuitive, the things, but the things that the world values are not the things that God values. The world values accomplishments, fame, prestige, prestige, money, winning. But God values humility, faith, trust in Him. And so if we're going to be close to God's heart, if we're going to be first in God's eyes, we need to be people who are humble. People who lay down our pride. And then Jesus continues and He says, if anyone desires to be first, he also must be a servant of all. This word for servant speaks of uh, people who would wait tables in the ancient world. It wasn't speaking of a slave uh, in this setting, but a person who would wait ta- tables. This was considered to be a very demeaning job. It wasn't like you know, being a server today where it's not you know, a bad job. In that day and age, it was considered to be a very lowly job. The Greek philosopher Plato once said, how can a person be happy when he has to serve someone? So this was a very demeaning thing that Jesus is calling his disciples to do. And he says, don't just serve one person, serve everybody. Adding upon the previous metaphor, not only does Jesus call his disciples to go to the back of the line, to become last, but also to get up from the line and to serve the others. Follower Jesus is not sitting in awe, but serving everyone who is in need. And then he goes further. He gives an example from everyday life. A clear illustration of what he's talking about. He calls a child into his midst and he hugs the child. And he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, this is a very interesting passage. And when we look at this, it might seem strange to us. Because when we think about children, we live in kind of a child-centered culture. And so if we have children, we you know, greatly value our children. We take care of our children. But it was a little bit different in the time of Jesus. Of course, they loved their children and whatnot. But there was a different way of viewing children. Uh, in that time, there, were, there was a, a great infant mortality. So they would often have large families and expectation that not all of them would survive. And they kind of took a more hands-off approach to their children. And as people viewed children, they kind of viewed them as kind of inferior. You know, we kind of look at children and as they're learning and, and developing. It's kind of, you know, we can appreciate the wonder involved in that. But in that day and age, they kind of viewed that poorly. They just kind of looked down on children as not having arrived. One scholar writes this, unlike the present day idealization of children, the first century was not child-oriented time. Children were not romanticized as examples of innocence and purity. On the contrary, unable to keep the law, little children were seen in Judaism as at best as weak 
and not yet people of the covenant. Further, the ones who would teach children would often be the lowest members of society, slaves. It was a task that was given to slaves because it's not something that other people would want to invest in. So the slaves would be responsible often for uh, teaching the children. So children were unimportant. They were the least in society. But Jesus tells his disciples that when you care for a child, it's like you're caring for me. And, and in turn, it's like you're caring for God. Matthew twenty-five thirty-one to 40 echoes this when it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, and as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did, you, then would, when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did you, we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to, it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. As you did it to the least of one of these, my brothers, you did it to me. See, if we love God, we'll express that love to other people. We can't say that we love God and we don't love the people that are closest to God's heart. So we learn a few things here. The first thing we learn is that children are valuable to God. I mean, that's a clear principle that we can gain from this passage. Children are valuable to God in a culture that often looks down upon children in terms of them being terminated, a mistake, or an interruption. God tells us that children are valuable. It also tells us that those of us who invest in children are doing a noble cause, are making a difference, are serving God. It tells us that those serving in children's ministry have a high calling, that those serving in children's ministry are important to God. It tells us that when we serve children by doing outreach events like Breakfast with Santa or Halloween outreach or Easter egg hunt, we're making a difference because we're caring for people that are close to God's heart. It tells those here who are parents that the time that we invest in our children is valuable. It's not a waste. It's not insignificant. Children are important to God. But I think we can zoom out a little bit from that also. And we can learn a kind of a deeper principle from this passage. And what Jesus is saying here. I think we can learn that as followers of Jesus, we will often find ourselves doing things that to the world seems like a waste of time. We'll find ourselves doing things that to the world seem insignificant. To the world, the world asks, so why would you invest in people who are poor or, or who are homeless? Don't you know that they have done things to get there? Don't you know that they're just going to go back to that Why would you take the time to help a widow? What do you, what do you hope to gain from that? Well, why would you take a time, time to make a child's day? So we live in a different reality than the people of the world. The world asks the question, how is this going to benefit me? But 
God's people ask, how is this going to benefit God? And kind of going back to that winning culture, the win-at-all-cost culture, it looks at the world in terms of what can I achieve? How can I win the gain of life? How can I set out to do what I want to accomplish? But God's people say, what can I give? Followers of Jesus are not ultimately out to win, but to give. And in essence, when we do that, we're choosing to lose. We're choosing to give up. We're getting off the treadmill, so to speak, that we're trying to win, trying to achieve. And we get off that treadmill and say, I'm not trying to win, I'm trying to please God. And we do that by serving others, by laying down our own quest to win. And laying down our pride. And the reason that we can do that is because Jesus did that for us. We see in Philippians 2, 5 to, 5 to 8, Have this mind in among yourselves, which is, all, is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, you might have expected Jesus to come in and be born in a palace with a great procession. You might have expected to him to have this huge triumphal procession with armies and guards and angels singing out and screaming his praises, but he didn't do that. He was born in a manger. He lived a sinless life, and though he lived a sinless life, he was persecuted. He emptied himself. And just like this passage is calling his disciples to become a servant of all, Jesus became a servant to all. Choosing to be crucified on the cross was signified the curse of God. Choosing to be identified with sinners. Choosing, in essence, to become a loser. Being crucified between two Roman criminals. The worst of society. Jesus chose to empty himself for us. But then, God also exalted him. The the passage continues in verse 9. and says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because Jesus emptied himself, Because Jesus was crucified, God exalted him to the place that his name is above every name. And as we humble ourselves, as we choose to lose, choose to lay down our own pride rights, as we do that, God will also exalt us. Luke 14, 11 says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I've been watching uh, America's Got Talent um, throughout the summer, and uh, a couple weeks ago was the season finale, and at the season finale, there were uh, two people who were the last two finalists, two little girls, uh, about the same age. They were both extremely talented. One was a a singer, and uh, one was a ventriloquist, and, uh, you know, kind of had a hard time deciding, who do I want to win because they were both so good they're both really cute um and so stephanie and i were talking about it and the we noticed that the one the one little girl was like i can't believe that i got here uh this is like a dream come through come true i'm just like enjoying every moment of this and the other one was like 
I want to be a star. I want to be like the next superstar. I want to have a star in Hollywood with my name on it. And so we looked at both of those, those two people and we're like, all right, let's, we want the person that's kind of humble, the person who's just kind of enjoying the journey. And I think that's kind of how God views us. When we're humble, when we lay down ourselves for others, he looks at, it, looks at us and says, that person is close to my heart. And what he often does when he sees us is he gives us a place of priority. He gives us more influence. He might bless us financially. We don't know that for sure. But he chooses to bless us because we're pleasing him. A man named Doug Sparks who shares a story about uh, how he met another uh, missionary uh, in the mountains of Taiwan. And uh, this missionary that he had met, um, he told about how he had met the founder of this whole missionary organization, Dawson Trotter, Trotman. And so these two missionaries are talking together, and the one missionary says, I'll never forget Dawson Trotman. He was one of the most outstanding men I ever met. So the other missionary said, well, what impressed you about him so much? What, what did he say that was so influential to you? Missionary responded, oh, I don't remember anything that he said. He said, well, what is so outstanding about this man? You don't remember anything that he ever said. He said, well, I'll never forget it. He shined my shoes. This leader of this mission organization who organized this whole organization he took the time to shine one of the missionary's shoes. And he didn't remember any of the speeches that he gave. He didn't remember any of the work that he did. But he remembered the fact that he had shined his shoes. I think that's how we make a difference in this world. That's how we become winners in God's eyes. By doing things that the world considers insignificant. The world considers a waste of time. But things that are Deeply important to God. Caring for the poor. For the hungry. For the broken. And as we do that, God will exalt us. God will bring us closer to Him. And give us opportunity, further opportunities to serve Him. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your love for us. We thank You that You came to the earth to die on the cross for our, for our sins. That you gave up your rights for us. That you gave up your desire to lord over other people. And that you humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross. God, we thank you for that. We thank you that you're our example. That you give us strength. God, I pray that we would be people who follow you with all of our hearts. That we would do things that are maybe insignificant to the world but are important to you. And we trust that as we do that, you'll bless our efforts. God, we thank you for all that you're doing, and we thank you for all you're going to do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.